I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Now, Alina is, is doing the subject that Alina does best today. She's got a great guest for us. Alina, who's with us today? So with us, we've got Dr. Nicholas Terry, who's a senior lecturer in modern European history at the University of Exeter. He is also the founder of anti-denial blog, Holocaust Controversies. You may also recognise him from David Bedil's BBC Two documentary on the history of denial. And he's with us today to talk about one very specific year uh, during the Second World War that is quite important. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. There's a lot. There's a lot that happens uh, in this year. So we're going to talk about 1941 and why it's so important and what actually happens in this year. So in 1941, the occupation of the Balkan states uh, by the Axis, the invasion of the Soviet Union, the decision to exterminate the Jewish population. So we're going to try and break all of these things down and start with the invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941. Because by this point, uh, there wasn't yet a decision or a plan for mass extermination in death camps. Uh, Extermination was happening via other means. So the German army enters the Soviet Union, not far behind them, Einsatzgruppen and the police battalions, what was the purpose of these units and what was the plan for the Soviet Union? Um, well, actually, Einsatzgruppen had followed all of the German forces in every single annexation and occupation um, from 1938 onwards, with the exception of the campaign in the West. So they went into Austria and the Czech lands and Poland in 1939 and the Balkans in the spring of 41. So this was like standard procedure for the Nazis because they wanted to have their Gestapo on hand to implement whatever it is they were going to do. Of course, there's a big difference. They didn't go into Austria and the Anschluss and murder Jews. They went in there and persecuted, and they began obviously trying to expel uh, Jews from Austria and force their emigration. But by June 1941, they have... They, you know, they, they've already tasted first blood. They've murdered Jews and Poles in Poland. Um, and now, of course, they are invading the Soviet Union, the Bolshevik state, which, of course, the Nazis saw as being controlled by the Jews wrongly. But nonetheless, that was their ideology was, of course, that Jewish Bolshevism was, was the greatest threat to, to Europe. And therefore, whatever was going to happen at the very least, these Einsatzgruppen and other SS and police units were going to be doing something pretty extreme. But you're right, there hadn't yet been a decision by Hitler um, or other Nazis to exterminate all Jews in Europe. And it's by the end of the year, December 41, Hitler had taken that decision. He'd made that announcement to his leadership and they began to implement it in 1942 across the whole of Europe. So it's those sort of six, seven months that really are, they've been studied endlessly. Uh, you know, I've been studying it for decades and teaching for, for a long time. And what I think is interesting is how we, we sort of probably 
20 years, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, we would have probably seen this as simply um, an unfolding of a decision that had already been taken by Hitler in early 1941. And that changed really by the 80s. We saw it as less programmatic, less pre-programmed. And, and I think the reasons why, obviously, was because we studied it more, but also we were starting to realise it wasn't just about the Nazis' sort of plans for what they were already calling the final solution. And that, I think, goes back to several things. The first thing is really, um, what were the Nazi plans for the invasion of the Soviet Union? Why did they invade the Soviet Union? What, what, what were they intending to do? So... Hitler decided in 1940 that he was going to have to knock the Soviet Union out um, to prevent them from coming into the war on the side of Britain. So the initial aims were strategic. Then, by early 41, they started to get greedy. They looked at the Soviet Union as a place where they could get oil, grain, food. So they added economic motives. And that was when things started to get radical because they realized that in order to get as much food as they wanted and all the grain from Ukraine and elsewhere, they were going to have to starve the urban population of the Soviet Union, which is what we now call the hunger plan. We call it a plan, but it wasn't really very worked out. They just said, well, if we do what we want to do, we're probably going to kill and starve about 30 million people and they're going to have to go off to Siberia and we don't care what happens to them. So they didn't really have a very clear idea of what they were going to do. But of course, you might realise that who lives in the cities of the Soviet Union? Jews. So they were already kind of marked out for, for you know, some bad fate. And then... The next phase, just before the invasion, was to start thinking about how they were going to create Nazi living space, the colonial side of the invasion, Lebensraum. And of course, if you want to create a Nazi empire, you don't really want Jews there. So again, this reinforces the idea that they're going to basically do something for Jews, maybe expel them to Siberia or to northern Russia to get them out of the Nazi sphere of influence. So it's much debated as to exactly what the Nazis, you know, what Himmler and Heydrich had told the Einsatzgruppen leadership um, in June 41 before they invaded the Soviet Union. They clearly told them something, but these were only four groups of 3,000 SS men. They didn't know whether those units were going to crack under the strain of killing. They didn't know whether the army would tolerate such, you know, extreme atrocities. They didn't know whether they could maybe get cooperation from the local population. They didn't know whether maybe they could just simply terrorise the Jews into fleeing, and that would be a result for them. So... What I think, and I think that there are a number of other historians who'd agree now, is that they were told, this is the end goal. We want to get rid of them. If that can be done this way, great. It's kind of up to you. And so they moved in, and they were initially told, target the Jewish communists, target the Jewish officials, target intelligentsia, those who might oppose us. So some 
of the killings are quite limited. But very quickly, we see really large-scale 3,000 killed here, more elsewhere, massacres. And those were because it wasn't just the Einsatzgruppen who were involved in killing, even before the end of the month of June. And remember that Barbarossa starts on June 22nd. It's, this blows my mind that there are this many lunatics that can come together and just like formulate policy like this about mm. just exterminating people. Can you tell us what happens in Lithuania in July 1941 and how it falls into the narrative? Right. Well, that's a really good example of what they didn't fully predict. The Nazis obviously had, you know, plans to use Lithuanian exiles and nationalists to sort of help them overthrow the Soviets and take over the country. So there was a full-scale Lithuanian uprising in in June 1941 um, with Nazi help. There were, you know, nationalists who were in exile. And these nationalists had become really quite radical um, in 1940, 1941. Up till the 30s, Lithuania wasn't really a country where anti-Semitism was a really big deal. It had a right-wing dictatorship in the interwar period, but the nationalists and then obviously small fascist groups became more and more radical because everybody was copying Germany. And with the Soviet annexation, then they blamed the Jews wrongly because Jews were actually a very small minority of the Soviet occupation authorities. Many didn't come from Lithuania. But nonetheless, that image, a kind of false idea had been stimulated and it was in their propaganda. So the, the, the uprising is immediately followed by the SS moving in, Einsatzgruppe A, meeting Lithuanian so-called partisans, who are obviously like militia, ex-soldiers, who then start carrying out killings. There are pogroms, and this spreads across the whole country. So at the same time, there's actually a provisional government in Lithuania of Lithuanian nationalists. They de- they're essentially trying to declare independence, something that other uh, nationalist movements, the Ukrainians did the same thing in, in, in Lviv um, in July 41. They got squished. Lithuanians didn't get squished quite as badly, but the Nazis weren't going to allow an independent Lithuania, unlike how they had operated with Slovakia or Croatia creating, you know, new states. They didn't allow a return to Lithuanian sovereignty. So this is sort of like spiralling. And the Nazis are seeing that they're basically getting all the help they need, not just to persecute the Jews and to, you know, decimate them, but to start really seriously killing them. The German army is saying, you know, we actually have to watch how much the, 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 their Jew hatred is is um, is at work when they were reporting from Vilna. And bear in mind that the way the invasion went, Army Group North was kind of in the main part of of, um, of Lithuania and the Vilna area in the south, which used to be part of Poland. That was under Army Group Centre. But nonetheless, across both parts, then there were killings everywhere. So the provisional government, it was kind of like many other 
Nazi allied governments and, and leaders of politicians. It was it had become anti-Semitic. It had plans to essentially expel Jews. They introduced anti-Jewish laws all by themselves without needing the Nazis to help. But they were actually divided on the question of whether to exterminate. And that's what's really interesting is they have, you know, got really into this frenzy. They've got carried away with with pogroms, with murdering Jewish neighbours. And then some of them are starting to be like, whoa, hold on, this is maybe going too far. Whereas others were like, no, nah, this is exactly what we want to do. Let's get rid of all of them. And so there were Lithuanian um, security battalions, so-called TDA battalions. And actually when, at the start of August, it became clear to them that they were going to be used to exterminate Jews, then actually quite, you know, a, a, a quite high proportion, I mean, you know, so, you know, 15, 20% maybe resigned. They just decided, now this is not for me. I don't want to do this. But the rest of them stayed. And then from really the start of August until the end of November 1941, the whole of occupied Lithuania other than the big ghettos, the three big ghettos, Vilna, Kaunas, and, and I can never pronounce it in Lithuanian, but it's called Shaolin in German. Um, they were left because they needed the workers, but every single provincial small town, the so-called shtetls, they were wiped out and, and cleansed of all of the Jewish population through mass shootings. And what's really interesting is that while this was very much directed by Einsatz Commando 3 of, of, of the SS, the practical work was left to the Lithuanian professional police service. And then the killing was done by a combination of these nationalist militias and local Lithuanian police. And that the neighbours, the Lithuanian neighbours who, who saw all of this happening, um, they... You know, some of them obviously helped. Some of them saved Jews, have hid them, rescued. But the majority saw this as an opportunity to sort of profit um, and to sort of, you know, take over houses and businesses and so on. So it was really quite a big deal in, in, in Lithuanian society. Um, even though, obviously, there were voices, even extreme nationalists, even anti-Semites, kind of went, why are we doing this? Why are we basically working at the behest of the Germans? And so in, in you know, in the, in the history, historiography, it's really much debated now as to how, was this, you know, simply just a Nazi project or was this actually something that, you know, part, you know, part of Lithuanian politics wanted? You can never sort of say it's the whole of the society. That, I think, has to be said now. Um, but nonetheless, you can see that a big faction of, of, you know, Lithuanian politics is very much like, let's do this. Um, and that's something that we see replicated elsewhere, um, but in, in obviously different ways. We can be very Nazi focused when it comes to the extermination of the Jews. I mean, what about the Balkans? How does Croatia come into all of this? Because by 1941, it is occupied by the Axis powers. Mm-hmm. What did they do with their Jews? Well, with in, in, in Yugoslavia, obviously, it was divided between Italy, Germany, Bulgaria, Hungary. So 
Italy and Germany had kind of occupation zones in, in this new created, newly created independent status of Croatia. They'd also occupied Slovenia. And actually, it wasn't so much about, the, you know, the Jews in Croatia. It was actually mainly about the Serbs because of the Serbo-Croat rivalry that had developed, but mainly because the Croatian fascists, the Ustasha, were virulently anti-Serb. So, again, we see, you know, here you've got an actual independent state. It's, you know, called a puppet state often, but it had its own agenda. And I think that's really, really important to stress. With the Lithuanians or, or Latvians or others, then you can see that maybe the agenda has been given to them by the Nazis and they're kind of implementing it. With Croatia, they have their own agenda. But it's done, and this kind of results in, in a real paradox. The Croatians get agreement to ethnically cleanse. That term that we know from the 90s, 1990s war in Yugoslavia was already being used in 1941 to ethnically cleanse, you know, several hundred thousand Serbs and to expel them to Nazi-controlled puppet Serbia. But this basically goes a bit pear-shaped because the Ustasha decide they're going to massacre many of the Serbs, and they go so far that the Germans and the Italians become disgusted. So the Italian zone, they effectively stop it, which I think is really important. It shows you that these powers, if they didn't, felt uncomfortable, even though they were Axis states, fascist Nazi states, then they, they had some limits to some, occasionally. Um, in the German zone, then basically it carried on. But as things progressed, the Croatian ethnic cleansing of the Serb provoked a Serbian nationalist um, counter-rebellion. Um, and also then after the 22nd of June, which is where it ties in with Barbarossa, then the, the Yugoslav Communist Party also begins an uprising. So you've now got civil war. So suddenly all these plans for what could have been neat ethnic cleansing and transferring Serbs from Zagreb to Belgrade suddenly fail. So the Serbs set up camps, one of which is uh, very famous, Jesenovac, uh, out, you know, which is kind of a big camp complex. And they also know that they can't get rid of all the other peoples they don't like, like the Roma and Sinti, the Gypsies, and like the Jews. And so Jews, Gypsies and Serbs begin also to be interned in camps. And by November 41, the Croatians are killing Jews inside the camps. Up until that point, they were like persecuting and discriminating them, trying to expel them but basically put them into camps, but then they started killing. Um, they didn't finish the job inside Croatia in 1942. They then handed over some Croatian Jews to the Nazis who deported them to Auschwitz. But that was also in the context of trying to continue this ethnic cleansing and genocide against Serbs. So by the summer of 41, 100,000 Serbs had been murdered um, and massacred inside Croatia and Bosnia. Um, and so this is all happening at the same time as the Lithuania, in Lithuania, Jews are being exterminated. So it's a very interesting synchronicity with some very, you know, significant differences. Um, but I think that it, it's kind of just reminds us that 
isn't ju- isn't just the Holocaust that's actually unfolding in in the summer of forty one. There are other programs of ethnic cleansing which are beginning um, across you know part you know across this sort of axis coalition. So doesn't Romania follow Croatia as well in killing their Jews? Yes, they do. Um, they the Romanians were part of the Nazi invasion, so they're like the fourth front, the fourth army group in the south. Um, who start just a little after 22nd of June. And actually, they, like um, the Baltic states in eastern Poland, obviously they had a similar resentment against the Soviet Union and thus and which they blamed on the Jews because of the annexation of their eastern territories, Bessarabia and Bukovina, uh, which the Soviets had annexed in 1940. So this, you know, the whole point of them going to war in the Soviet, uh, with the Soviet Union was to recover their territory. So in the context of this, they actually already had a pogrom in the town of Yassi, which is actually on the 1940-41 Romanian side of the border. So it wasn't even in the new, you know, the territories they'd lost that the Romanian army decides it's going to kind of run amok. But when they move into Bessarabia and Bukovina, um, then they use the local population, Romanian soldiers, Romanian gendarmerie and police units, and they start carrying out massacres that go from being small pogroms to quite large-scale killings, but they don't kill everybody. So unlike the Nazis, they haven't yet radicalised, they haven't escalated. They they create ghettos. And then you know, as they move into the Soviet Union further, they cross into Ukraine and they besiege Odessa. And the Romanians are given a, a, a territory of their own, Transnistria, which is between the Dniester River and the Bug River, um, which is old Soviet territory. This is now to be part of Greater Romania. It, of course, also has Jews. The Romanians see Transnistria as a wonderful place to dump anybody they don't like, obviously first starting with the Jews. So by October 41, they're beginning the expulsion of over 100,000 Jews in a kind of trail of tears situation. So there are lots of people moving on foot, some of them are being shot at or robbed or dying of starvation, and then they're put into camps and ghettos in Transnistria. They also take Odessa in October 41. And the Romanians, um, the Soviets, sorry, they do what they did in several other places, including in Kiev, and they lead a huge delayed action demolition, explode, uh, you know, sort of pre, pre-packaged kind of terrorist sort of bombing to go off after they've evacuated the survivors. So this goes off and it kills the Romanian general. The one that went off in Kiev in September 41 killed a German general. So these are really big bombs. And this was a trigger for a massive bloodbath on the spot in Odessa of Romanians killing Jews, over 10,000. And then basically even larger numbers are transported out of Romania, of Odessa, to several different sort of 
improvised camps outside the city. One has also received other Jews from Transnistria and some from Bessarabia called Bogdanovka. It's just a collective farm. It's not, it's not a big camp. But by the, you know, end of 41, there are conditions in Bogdanovka have become so bad, the local Romanian commanders decide they're just going to massacre everybody. And so they, you know, this site saw the murder of around 42,000 Jews, which is actually bigger than the, the, the any other uh, massacre site in, in, in the occupied Soviet Union. It's bigger than Babi Yar, uh, which is the killing site of Kiev. And then there's another site which in early 42 is used to the north of Odessa, Berezovka. And again, there it's probably a similar number of Odessan Jews who are murdered. The twist with that one is that a lot of the killing was done by ethnic Germans, not Romanians. So there are Nazi, you know, organized units who are actually helping, but it's ultimately at the decision of the Romanians. And they're kind of like the Croatians. They're quite wild. So at certain points, they're trying to expel their Jews over the, the, their border with Nazi-controlled Ukraine, which is also what the Hungarians did in July, August 41 as well. So there's, you know, other nationalists, you know, other states are sort of using the opportunity of, of the invasion of the Soviet Union to get rid of some of the Jews that they don't like. In the Hungarian case, it's because they're supposed foreign citizens. And they're basically, um, you know, it's about 25,000. Um, and they go through Galicia into Volhynia, and sorry, Podolia, which is the old Soviet part of um, Western Ukraine. And they're kind of all gathered at a town called Kamenets-Podolsk, in, in, that's the Russian's pronunciation. Um, and that's actually Kamenets-Podolsk is interesting because that's the first place where the Nazis carry out a five-figure massacre because they've got all these refugees that they don't want. Hungarians won't take them back. What to do with them? Let's just murder them. So the SS and the Einsatzgruppen in, in the southern sector under Friedrich Jekeln, they end up massacring 27,000 uh, Jews, these refugees and local Jews, a lot alongside them, um, at the end of August 41. So it's a full month before the much more famous massacre at Babiar, which is slightly bigger at about 34,000. But you see how therefore quite entangled these, these expulsions and massacres become. So it's, uh, yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The non-World War II historian is going to throw a grenade into the room now. Great! <laughs> just because I can get away with it because I just plead ignorance. Uh-huh. When do you think the decision was made to initiate the final solution? Because this has to be, it has got to have been a hot debate amongst historians over the years. It has been. And of course, some, some almost joke about it as, as the dating game, uh, which is a little too flippant. Mainly because you can, to an extent, make arguments for a variety of dates when Nazi intentions seem to have crossed, you know, whatever threshold you think constitutes extermination. But I say that really since, I mean, it's really since an article by Christian Gerlach in 1997, when he found an entry of Goebbels's diary that had been in the Moscow archives, when Hitler, after the declaration of the war against the United States on 12th of December 1941, gathered all of his Reichsleiter and Gauleiter, so his top political party bosses, to his flat in Berlin and said, the world war is here, we're going to destroy the Jews. This is a short paraphrase. That's because ever since the start of 1941, on the, his speech on the 30th of January, he'd actually reminded everybody of a prophecy he'd made in a speech on the 30th of January 1939. He threatened in 1939 that if a world war came about, then the result would not be the extirpation of the, you know, of, of Germany, but the destruction of the Jewish race in Europe. In 1939, that was a threat. That was, you know, I hate to kind of make the analogy, but it's almost unavoidable. It was almost Trumpian in terms of being like a rhetorical outburst. Let's just intimidate the Americans and, and, and British and so on to sort of take more Jews so we can get, make Germany free of Jews and also to warn them not to get involved. But in 1941, this prophecy becomes almost like a refrain. You hear it before the start of Barbarossa. So Seis Inkvart, who's the Nazi Reich Commissar in the Netherlands, he repeats it in the spring of 41. And after, in the summer of 41 and autumn of 41, it becomes just a mantra. And that's because, from the Nazi perspective, from Hitler's perspective, he can see the way the war's going. He thinks America is about to come in. Even though they don't, don't declare war on Germany, he declares war on them after Pearl Harbor, and there's already kind of tangling and, and fighting, you know, sort of convoying in, 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 in the Atlantic and support from America to Britain. It's almost a de facto war. So politically and ideologically, the moment to make what is ultimately a political decision and a political announcement is after this big event. But pretty much from the late summer from September onwards, you can see that things are going in a certain direction. And I think that's one of the problems is that we think of the decision to make the final solution a matter of extermination as kind of 
nothing beforehand, death camps afterwards. And it's not, it's not like that. There's more of an evolution than that, isn't there? It is, because everywhere, I mean, I talked earlier about how the Croatians wanted to expel Serbs and Jews out of their territory and how Romania is doing the same and how Lithuanians were already thinking of, you know, getting rid of their Jews by expulsion in 1940 and how the Hungarians were were kind of expelling some Jews already in, 19, in the summer of 41. And all surprisingly, the Nazis, the Nazi party politicians, the Gauleiter, the, the different heads of the occupied territories, they all look and say, wow, we're occupying and beating the Soviets. We're taking over all of this space. What a wonderful place for us to be able to dump our Jews. Except, of course, it can't happen straight away. So Hans Frank, the governor general of, you know, rump Poland, of the central part of Poland, he's kind of talking in these ways before and after the invasion. He basically holds out hope that he can simply expel Polish Jews to the east all the way through till December 41 when he's at this meeting with with Hitler and the Gauleiter, and he the, the penny drops. They're not going to go to the East. We can't get rid of them. They're going to have to be killed on the spot. Liquidate them yourselves, he tells his cabinet back in Krakow. Greiser, who was the Gauleiter in charge of the Lodz-Poznan area, the Vatagau, he'd already worked out that this was, you know, pie in the sky. It wasn't going to happen. So he had already said... I really don't need my Jews who can't work for me, so let's just get rid of them. And that's why we end up with this paradox, but there's a local decision, and pretty much that's been agreed on firmly since really the early 90s. Um, but in Vartigal, the first death camp, the first extermination camp at Kelmno, um, began operations pretty much on the day of Pearl Harbor, around De- December 7th, 8th, 1941. But that was actually kind of a regional, local decision, which was almost in advance of the wider idea of let's get rid of German Jews, let's expel French Jews. At that time, German Jews had begun to be deported also to Lodz, which is actually one of the reasons why extermination started there, is that suddenly they were having more Jews dumped on them. Um but they're also going to, to Riga and to Minsk. And the Nazis were actually very inconsistent. They carried out some mass killings in Rumbula and outside Riga on late 30th of November 41. They massacred a thousand Jews from Berlin. But the local boss there was told off because they hadn't made a full political decision yet. The German Jews were allowed to be shot. And then other Jews sent to Minsk and they were simply left there until July, really until July 42, at which point they were then, you know, massacred. So <clears throat> the Nazis were very inconsistent in this phase because they were sort of starting to, you know, they still had this fantasy of expulsion of resettlements at the East very much on their brains. They... You know, this this vision that they had, that they'd already started to think about of sending Jews to Siberia or to, to northern Russia, to the Arctic Circle, it was so attractive to them. They, they were still planning 
some of you know expulsions of German Jews to Ukraine, even after the Wednesday Conference in January '42, as late as April 1942, they still had vague plans to do so, which they then they cancelled because by then the the Holocaust, the final solution that we know of deportations to extermination camps, had become sort of institutionalized and they'd they'd worked out that was so much easier you know why you know send jews to a reservation or a ghetto and wait for them to die when you can kill them more quickly but it took months it took really the whole of the winter of 41 42 for that to change you mentioned um in that answer pearl harbor and obviously there's a catastrophic event at the end of 1941 that brings america into the war did the entry of the u.s make a difference in accelerating the final solution process or did it have any influence at all on the decision that we know of oh yes absolutely i think that's very clear um that that from hitler's point of view politically diplomatically strategically internationally now was the time to do it so, you know, which I think is, the, the, of course, the catch is that the Nazis have been killing Jews quite extensively in the Soviet Union already. So they were also planning and definitely going ahead with deporting Jews who they fully expected to die. So this is very much the moment at which it becomes a pan-European event. Up until December 12, 1941, then really... You can say that the Nazis have decided on total extermination in, in the deep in the Soviet Union. They have definitely committed to, to more than the decimation of Polish Jews. And obviously Jews in Yugoslavia are also being, being exterminated both by the Germans and the, uh, uh, and the Croatians. Um, but at that stage, then they had, you know, they were still only starting to fantasize about what they were going to do with the French, Dutch, Belgian Jews, for example. And they still, you know, in essence, I think the entry of the US into the war is interesting also because of the propaganda campaign that that develops in the summer of 41. The Nazis hear about this crank pamphlet by a guy called Theodor Kaufmann, um, Germany Must Perish. Kaufmann was a classic crank. His solution to every problem in the world was sterilization. So something bad happens, sterilize the lot of them. He was Jewish. So he looks at Germany, says, look, Germany's invading all these countries. The best thing to do is to sterilize them. He has no influence in America. Nobody takes him seriously. He gets, I think, like a sort of two-inch review in, in Newsweek, which basically laughs at him. But the Nazis promote him into an advisor of Roosevelt. And they bang on about this because this is excellent propaganda justification material. Look, they, the American Jews, they're going to plan to sterilize us and kill them before we get killed ourselves. That's the logic of genocide. So the propaganda that unfolds in the summer of 41, it's not just about Jewish Bolsheviks in the East. It becomes very global. It becomes about American Jews. And so because of that, and because of the fact that they keep on repeating Hitler's prophecy, they even put it on a propaganda placard poster in September 41. 
in, in lovely, pretty letters with, you know, big, you know, filigrees and all the rest of it. And, and that prophecy and that, that rhetoric, it's almost like the Nazis talked themselves into, into exterminating the Jews. They're almost like they're psyching themselves up. There's another article that's very famous by Joseph Goebbels in November 41 called The Jews Are Guilty. And it's all basically, you know, one of the aims is to tell the German people, don't have sympathy for the Jews now that they're wearing a yellow star. Don't have sympathy for them now they're starting to be sent to the East. But he's very much repeating all of this stuff about the prophecy, about basically the need to, you know, connecting mentally the war in the Soviet Union with effectively what's about to happen, which is the entry of America into the war. Of course, America's dragged in by the Nazis. But this provides just the logical justification from, of course, the Nazi POV. So, I mean, this is this is an ongoing uh, argument amongst, again, another ongoing arguments amongst uh, Holocaust historians, because you either sit in one camp or you sit in the other. <laughs> so, <laughs> as as we all do. Um, so what was the actual plan for the final solution? Because some historians say, well, it was just orders about Hitler and he was it. He was the guy that was it. He made all the decisions. On the other side, um, the argument is that all the decisions realistically were made from below. So it wasn't all about Hitler. Mm. It was about everybody else. So in your opinion, what do you think? Well, I mean, that's, you know, that's very much the classic view. When I first started sort of learning about this very much, I was taught the idea that there was the intentionist view. It was all Hitler and he decided it early on. And then the functionist view, which is it was more organic and there was more of an influence from below. We try not to use those terms anymore because they are so out of date. They are they're like, you know, they're like mullets from the 80s, basically. They're really that out of date. And, and also because I think the intentionalists lost in the sense that we know so much more about how Hitler operated. He had his visions. He was a vision. He was the vision thing guy. He was the guy who would come and say the Jews, the Jewish race in Europe must be destroyed, as he told Gauleiter and Reichsleiter, Goebbels, Frank and Himmler and Rosenberg and all the others listening to him, told they were to be destroyed. How? Was up to his subordinates. It was up to Himmler and Heydrich and, and the other branch leaders of the SS. Um, and so the suggestions of how it was to be done, they much, very much came from below. This is why, you know, with Kelmo it was Gauleiter Arthur Greiser, who suggested, let's use this Sonderkommando Langer, who had been using gas vans to exterminate Polish psychiatric patients, let's use them to kill the Jews. And in central Poland, in, in the Lublin district, it's uh, Odilo Globotnik, who basically says, okay, I know there are big schemes to kind of expel Jews, etc., but, you know, you've told me to Germanize Lublin city. Let's let's send the Jews of Lublin City to, to an extermination camp and just kill them. And that's when Belzec was 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 established in the end of October forty one. Belzec was established very locally for this policy you know, as part of essentially a policy of Germanization. But then of course suddenly it was all 
um, available for this bigger vision of exterminating Polish Jews immediately or rapidly. And the same, I think, also can be said. I mean, it's a very much more contingent situation with Auschwitz. Alina will know that, that, that of course, the first gassing uh, with Zyklon B at Auschwitz was carried out in early September 1941. The, the targets, the victims, were Soviet prisoners of war, exposed commissars, as well as then sick um, inmates of the camps, mostly Poles, some Germans. That was done totally independently of, of, of any kind of Jewish policies, contrary to what the Commandant Rudolf Hirsch had said um, after the war. He kind of implied that he'd been given an order to carry out the final solution in the summer of 41. That was essentially to cover cover his backside, to make himself appear less, you know, less of a guy with initiative. He and his staff in the, in Auschwitz had hit upon a really good means of, of, of solving population problems, of using hydrogen cyanide gas to kill people. And so unsurprisingly, by early 42, Auschwitz becomes nominated as a, a place where Jews can be sent to. And by mid-42, they will be sent there and selected on the ramp. Um, and so that was very contingent, but that was an initiative from below. Hitler did not at any point say, I want to use Zyklon B to, to exterminate the Jews. That was something that his subordinates very much evolved sometimes for totally different reasons obviously you know the majority of gassings were carried out in the so-called operation reinhardt camps and they were all staffed with personnel who had experience in the t4 euthanasia program using carbon monoxide but with a different method so they adapted the nazis were big on delegation, you know, give a task to subordinate, leave it up to them to fulfill. And, you know, there were plenty of extremely murderously minded Nazis who were starting to think of these sort of things in the autumn of 41, before Hitler essentially gave the green light. I want to throw something in there, because um, working a lot on Auschwitz, uh, you see how the process evolves so they, con- I don't mean to sound it so basic, but they make mistakes. They make a lot of mistakes, especially yes. when they start with their selection processes. They basically, you know, they let the elderly in, they let young people in, you know, mothers with children, and then they start to evolve and the process starts to change. You know, let's just gas the mothers with the children because otherwise they're going to, you know, they're not going to be as productive. The elderly people, they're lasting, um, let's say, a couple of days, a couple of weeks. They're useless. Might as well gas them at the same at the same time. So it's like this whole evolution of of what works best, and it's it's absolutely horrific watching how it changes. Mm-hmm. It is, and I mean, it's you know, if we look, stand back from all of this, and look from the start of Barbarossa, it takes until July 1942. That's when selection on the ramp at Auschwitz is tested. It's not really even then systematic in, in Auschwitz until August 42. That's when also the same month when Treblinka starts, the third of the Reinhard camps. Everything up to that point can be seen as the Nazis seeing what was possible. And in the same way that the Einsatzgruppen were not themselves killing um, 
as many people in June, July as they did by October. They didn't know what they could achieve. They didn't know what help they needed, you know, how to kind of get a coalition to kind of help them with the genocide. And so this obviously, you know, some of what we see is hesitation, could well simply be this trial and error process, learning by doing, as sometimes people call it. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a really interesting example which comes from, um, from Silesia that some historians had thought based on testimonies that there was a, there was a network of forced labor camps for Jews called the organization Schmelt Camps. And some historians thought the Jews from this network who had become unfit for work were being sent to Auschwitz in the winter of 1941 to be gassed. Actually, your, you know, Nick Waxman looks at the um, uh, files and showed that the testimonies had been misinterpreted, and actually that wasn't the case. That happened later. In 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 early 1942 there was a whole trainload of Jews from Silesia who were sent all the way to northern Russia to work for the organization Tote, helping rebuild the Russian railways. So this was, you know, Jews being used for forced labor in the east. They were decimated. They had a really hard time. But they were all brought back in the spring of 42. At the same time... Then the ghettos of Silesia, Benjin and Sosnovitz were starting to be targeted before selection took place. And so locally, the Nazis in Silesia around Auschwitz were killing some of these Polish Silesian Jews, but not yet all. And they were doing so totally independently of Jews who were being sent to Auschwitz to build up Birkenau. Uh, the Slovakian Jews in particular being sent there who were not selected, but who all died like flies because of the horrific conditions of the camp. Nick, I mean, we could talk about this. I mean, you and I could talk about this forever. I mean, (laughs) I I would quite happily keep you on here for for the rest of the afternoon. But we've got to get you to talk more because um, I don't think we've stopped with this subject at all. So (laughs) we're definitely going to bring you back on to continue this discussion. But in general, I just want to say thank you so much for giving us this overview of 1941, how it was that it wasn't just all about the death camps, that we need to not forget the people that were being massacred uh, in Soviet Russia, in Lithuania, Croatia, Hungary, Romania, um, everywhere, basically, that it wasn't just about the death camps. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me on. I really hope History Hack goes well in the future. Join us tomorrow when Liz Gloin will be talking all about classical monsters. Not only the likes of Medusa and the Hydra and where they fit in in classical literature, but also as well we have a great chat about how they're portrayed in pop culture because that's her speciality. So you can hear all about the ones that she believes are the best and the worst incarnations. And of course Alina and I get carried away fangirling over Disney's Hercules yet again. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 